Today's episode is brought to you by Jenny Zhang's My Baby First Birthday, a poetry collection that examines innocence, asking us who gets to be loved and who has to deplete themselves just to survive. In these poems, Zhang writes about accepting pain, about the way we fetishize womanhood and motherhood and reduce women to their violations, traumas, and body parts. She questions the way we feminize and racialize nurturing and live in service of other people's dreams. Jenny Zhang, says Ariana Rains, makes me feel alive. Her rage and appetites are unslakable. Dorothea Lasky adds, Jenny Zhang will always be one of the most important poets writing today. She consistently and constantly stretches the lyric to its necessary and best intentions, telling it where it only may dream or dare to go. My baby first birthday is out now from Tin House. I'm really excited to share today's conversation with the Mexican novelist Fernanda Melchor, not only because Melchor is an important contemporary Mexican writer, not only because hurricane season is her English language debut, a debut that finds her on the shortlist for this year's Booker Prize, but also because her appearance on Between the Covers is her first radio or podcast discussion in English about this book or about her writing in general. We talked from my home in Portland, Oregon, and hers in Puebla in Mexico, but the book takes place in a fictionalized version of Veracruz and its surroundings, the Gulf Coast region where she grew up. Fernanda shares being a finalist of the International Booker Prize with her translator, Sophie Hughes, who was also a finalist last year for her translation of Alia Trabuco-Zeran's The Remainder. For those who subscribe to the bonus audio archive, this week's edition is particularly robust. Sophie and I talk between Portland and London about the challenges and excitements of translating hurricane season and about the life of a literary translator more generally. We had so much enthusiasm about these topics that the time flew by and we talked for nearly an hour. Access to the bonus audio such as this, to supporter-only emails full of resources to complement each episode, and all sorts of other possibilities from copies of Ursula K. Le Guin's Conversations on Writing, to becoming an early reader for Tin House, receiving 12 books over the course of a year, months before they're available to the general public. All of these things and more can be found at patreon.com slash between the covers. Check it out and consider supporting the show. Enjoy today's program with Fernanda Melchor. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in 
is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is Mexican novelist Fernanda Melchor. Melchor received a degree in journalism from Universidad Veracruzana, where she was coordinator of communication of the Veracruz del Rio campus. And she has a master's in aesthetics and art from the Benemerita Universidad Autónoma de Puebla. Her fiction and nonfiction has appeared in the Paris Review, Le Monde Diplomatique, GQ, Vanity Fair, and Replicante, among many others. She's the author of the essay collection Aquí No Es Miami and the novel Falsa Liebre. And in 2018, she won the Penn Mexico Award for Literary and Journalistic Excellence. Fernanda Melchor is here today to talk about her first novel to be translated into English, Hurricane Season, just out from New Directions and translated by Sophie Hughes. Fernanda Melchor won the 2019 Anna Segers Prize from the German translation of Hurricane Season, along with her translator Angelica Amar, joining Pass Between the Covers guests Cristina Rivera Garza and Yuri Herrera in earning this distinction. Hurricane Season has also won the International Literature Award and an English Pen Translates Award, and Fernanda Melchor and her translator, Sophie Hughes, are shortlisted for the 2020 International Booker Prize. Publishers Weekly says of Hurricane Season, Melchor's English-language debut is a furious vortex of voices that swirl around a murder in a provincial Mexican town. Forceful, frenzied, violent, and uncompromising, Melchor's depiction of a town ogling its own destruction is a powder keg that ignites on the first page and sustains its intense explosive heat until its final sentence. Ben Lerner adds, brutal, relentless, beautiful, fugal. Hurricane season explores the violent mythologies of one Mexican village and reveals how they touch the global circuitry of capitalist greed. This is an inquiry into the sexual terrorism and terror of broken men. This is a work of both mystery and critique. Most recent fiction seems anemic by comparison. And finally, Jeremy Garber says, Hurricane season is an unrelenting torrent of violence, barbarity, recrimination, sex, greed, trauma, corruption, neglect, fear, lust, deceit, baseness, and the insidiousness of evil. The young Mexican author writes with unflinching ferocity, and her propulsive prose is simultaneously scintillating and suffocating. Hurricane season brings to mind other darkly delirious works of semi-fiction like Rafael Chirbis's On the Edge, Bolaño's 2666, or even the novels of Santiago Gamboa. Inspired by a story Melchor encountered in a local newspaper, Hurricane Season offers a testimonial of our increasingly depraved age of disconnection and disposability, a remarkable, indelible work of art. Welcome to Between the Covers, Fernanda Melchor. Hello, David. Hello, everyone. So one of your books prior to Hurricane Season is a nonfiction book called Aquí No Es Miami, which will be called This Is Not Miami in its eventual English translation. 
that book is a series of true stories that are set in and around the city of Veracruz where you grew up. And while hurricane season is fiction, the people in it feel similar to the real people in these more journalistic literary pieces that you wrote. The idea for hurricane season began itself with a real life event. And at first you wanted to write something in the spirit of Truman Capote's In Cold Blood. So I was hoping maybe we could start with your encounter with the real life incident What about that incident captured your imagination? And then ultimately, why you decided to write this as fiction rather than as another piece of nonfiction? One of the things I uh, found more interesting about this case, well, I I don't know if I should call it a case. I read once in the newspaper around the year 2012, I think. Uh, I was working back then in Veracruz. I was, uh, well, I studied journalism, but back then I did um, social communication, like um, uh, for a a university. So I was in my office reading the newspaper and I found this story about a witch who was murdered in in a small village outside the, uh, in the outskirts of the port of Veracruz, where I was working and living. And one of the things that uh, most impressed me was the the fact that the policeman, the journalist, everyone in that uh, small uh, uh, news story seemed to believe that uh, witchcraft could be like a motive for a murder. So I thought that was really particular about um, a city. I, I thought that was... Uh, something very particular about Veracruz, mm. the, the the spiritual beliefs in witchcraft and sorcery. And I was just trying to figure out what was behind, actually behind that crime, you know? Like if the murder, if the, if the killer said to the police, I murder her because she was doing witchcraft on me, I, I wanted, I wanted to understand what, actually had happened, you know, the story behind that, that story. And I, that was like, like, you know, like a seed, like, um, something was planted in my mind, like a curiosity, uh, to find out what really happened. And, um, I don't know, uh, I guess I was just trying to, to, build a story from uh, from that kind of um, information. So it, it is always strange how fiction uh, works, right? Uh, I mean, you go around, you know, living and, and working and doing your stuff, and sometimes you read something, somebody says something to you, or, or you hear a, a piece of a song, and something explodes in your head and you find a story uh, there. And, and and what happened was that uh, at first, as, as, as you told, uh, at first I wanted to to write a sort of a nonfiction um, novel, like uh, in Cold Blood from Truman Capote, who was an, it, it is an author that I really, really respect. And one of the first authors uh, that I read in my youth that um, 
um, made me realize it was possible to uh, to write about reality and write about uh, fiction uh, with equally with with equal quality with with uh, with a great level. And and well, Truman Capote is a genius, a total genius. But I was not. So uh, well, while I was tempted to go uh, to this small village and start doing research and find the names and, you know, um, uh, find everybody who, who told me something about this crime. Um, I thought that it was not only dangerous at that time, because, you know, 2012 was a very difficult year for Veracruz. In that time, we have like uh, the presence of two cartels, sometimes three uh, fighting their position fighting uh, the, the, the drug dealing business and it was a very difficult time to 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 be in Veracruz and also I didn't thought it was the best I, I didn't I didn't thought that just by being there and asking questions, to you know the murderers and and uh, getting into you know getting permission to to interview them in jail and talking to the police and and talking to to the neighbors of the victim, I, I didn't thought that I could get to the to the heart of the crime. I wasn't sure I could do it. Mm. It is it is something weird when you think of the the center of a crime of the heart of a crime what lays in there and why would any what will anybody will want to share that with another person and uh, and stranger like me a stranger woman uh, like me so so i thought it was a bad idea from the beginning so uh maybe i tried to console myself that uh i, I could do that research through fiction i mean uh, to explore this uh, awkward, dark feelings and emotions inside myself, it, thinking that at the end we're all human beings and what happens to one of us is practically what could happen to anybody else. So, I don't know. Uh, I It was very different. Uh, for example, when I wrote Aquino's Miami, this is not Miami. Uh, lots of those stories were also stories I heard uh, uh, even when I was a little child and that I was so curious that I grew up and, and was my way of um, finding the truth, you know, uh, doing journalistic uh, research, emerographic research. And uh, these dark stories about Veracruz, but at the same time, I always thought that this story with the witch was going to be something different, not not a nonfiction. I mean, I I, I liked uh, I I like to play with the idea to be a, a like you know like a crime reporter, and I toyed with the idea uh, of of going going there, but at the end I thought it was too dangerous. What's interesting about reading your nonfiction in Aquino es Miami is that it often feels like you're reading fiction. And I don't mean that it feels <laughs> unbelievable. 
but it feels like you draw us into a spell or into a scene that I often associate with reading novels. And you even have pieces that are written in the second person, uh, even though you're telling a, a true yeah. a true tale. And it's, there's this interesting meditation you have on this in your author's note to the nonfiction book, where you suggest that all language, whether it's nonfiction or fiction, doesn't really represent reality, but disturbs it. And, and you quote Sartre, who said, it is not reality that tells stories, but human speech and memory. And similarly, in the epigraph, in one of the epigraphs to Hurricane Season from the novel The Dead Girls, it's, it says, some of the events described here are real. All of the characters are invented. And I guess I wanted to hear a little bit about your thoughts on language and its relationship to quote unquote reality. Well, to be a journalist, I think I have like an extreme position uh, to consider uh, language totally far away from uh, from reality. This is this is like really hard sometimes to explain to colleagues, uh, journalists, journalists, and. I always try to, they ask me, uh, why is that story real, but you're telling it to you're telling it like a tale. And I'm, I'm interested, I'm, I'm always interested in, in finding the best way to tell a story, to find a way that's, you know, uh, not, not only fun, but touching. Uh, I think I, I really believe that, uh, journalism in, in its search from objectivity, from total objectivity, uh, it has uh, lose the its grasp on language. Uh, I think it, this happens in Mexican journalism. We have we have a, a genre called crónica. Uh, it's like um like literary uh, reporting, like um, like long form, like. Um, it's it's really it's really hard to explain because it has it has become a, a gender uh, of itself. So it is about telling a story with the using using uh, literature, like using high literature, and normally that would collide with the idea that uh, words are simple and words are like unidimensional objects that can be used like uh, utensils like like tools right and but at the same time I think I think words are uh, difficult also and they are um, they turn against you when you try to use them and all what I wanted to do was to not take for granted this uh, this uh, complex nature of words, and I wanted to use I wanted to use words in a way that could um, produce feelings mm. in the in the reader or in the listener. What happened in that time in Mexico was that uh, either the press was not talking about uh, narco violence, or they were talking about it, but it was all about the great capos, you know, like the the the, the great kingpins, or uh, the the marine, the la marina, or, or the police, or the government. There were like two sides, two big sides of one struggle, 
And the stories I wanted to tell was the stories of the ordinary people who had to uh, suffer that that violence. You know, that they had to suffer the, the, the shooting machine guns in the streets and and uh, innocent people getting kidnapped and disappear by thousands, hundreds of thousands of people disappearing in Mexico during that, that time. So I wanted to talk about the experience of uh, regular people. Is that a way you would distinguish hurricane season from the the popular narco literature genre of Mexico? That it, I mean, one way I see it is really different is that, I mean, you mentioned that it's not glorifying like the mythologies of these yeah. these uh, drug cartel leaders, but also none of these drug cartels are even in the book. Like we're just we're really seeing the effect without seeing them present yes the thing is uh in that time in veracruz uh there was like a a split in society there were lots of people who justified the violence of what was happening the war uh between uh, you know government and 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 organized crime they were trying to justify that by saying everyone who's a victim is because it has it had something uh, is because he did something bad. Uh, every victim uh, is because uh, he was with the bad guys, you know. And I was trying to write these stories, uh, talking about how every one of us as a society uh, had a sort of uh, responsibility in the in the violence, even a small one, you know. But I also wanted to distance myself from the official uh, narrative. And I wanted basically to uh, write down stories that I was listening around me. And the thing in Veracruz is people, they have a really strong oral um, speech uh, culture. You know, uh, in Veracruz, in Veracruz, to be popular, you have to tell jokes. No, you have to improvise uh, poetry. It's called decimas. Uh, everything has to be with verbal expression and and you know rhythm. And I, I think this has to be because of our multiple uh, multi multilingual and, and multicultural uh, origins. Veracruz was a city that didn't exist before the Spaniards came to Mexico. It was founded by Spaniards and populated by uh, indigenous people from Mexico. And also uh, we have the presence of people all over the world and an important presence of uh, an African root in in Veracruz. So this kind of uh, mix makes a culture that gives really, really uh, great importance to speech. Um, And... That means that uh, people are great storytellers, but nobody cares uh, for writing those stories. Mm. So legends, uh, so uh, stories, folk tales are very important in in our culture. But at the same time, uh, it, it is it is like a it is like an art that uh, you practice by talking. So I wanted to write some 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 stuff because memory is treacherous uh, for us in Veracruz. So, uh, in the case of uh, lots of anecdotes that I that I wrote down, were present uh, in in my life since since childhood, but 
nobody could tell me when actually that happened. So I had to go to the, you know, to the archives and, and the library and uh, the hemeroteca, the hemerotec, uh, and, and search for, for the actual information. So in a way, it was like discovering where I was from and the stories where I was from. And at the other side, it was like training myself to be a writer because at that time I wanted to be a writer, a novel writer. The novels are like the literary genre that I prefer uh, over over everything, I guess. I was a, a, a novel novel reader since since a very early age. And it is just a, a literary form that, that uh, uh, I feel really passionate about. And I wanted to be a novel writer, a writer of novels, but uh, the way for me to create like, you know, literary muscle, like, like writing skills was to, uh, for me, I thought it was studying journalism and, and beginning by writing these uh, nonfiction stories, because it was easier for me to tell, to find the best way to tell a story. Uh, if the story wasn't mine, if it was something, something that I, uh, uh, I, I could trace and search and investigate. And because of this emphasis on the on the spoken versus the written, is there an absence of Veracruz in the Mexican imagination? Like, do we see Veracruz underrepresented in the literary imaginary in Mexico? I think uh, it's. Uh, I think it's the the, the disappearance of. Uh, Veracruz imaginary is more recent because, you know, Veracruz was a port f- uh, founded by Spaniards. So it was a very important place uh, at the beginning of, of Mexico's history and, and as, as a colony. Uh, we always joke and say that everything that's good and bad entered through Veracruz because it was the only port that, 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 they, that it exists in Mexico for a long time and the most important so through Mexico, uh, through Mexico entered the, the, the Spaniards that end up um, uh, conquering uh, Ciudad de Mexico, Tenoch, the, the old Tenochtitlan. Um, so through Mexico came all the uh, disease of the old, old world, for example, that, that took the lives of millions and of indige- indigenous people. And through Veracruz, uh, we got what we now in Mexico call uh, our culture or, or mix of uh, beliefs and uh, uh, ideas and, and this um, complex uh, mix of, uh, of uh, different elements that now makes us Mexicans. Mm. And at the same time, uh, there, there was lots of presence of Veracruz in the first chronicles, historical chronicles, or um, uh, uh, chronicles of uh, traveling people, uh, travelers who, who, who came to Mexico, Humboldt, for example, had to come through Veracruz. So he knew Veracruz pretty well. And there was lots of times that Veracruz was the center of uh, historical events also. But what I think is now in contemporary literature, and I'm thinking from the beginning of the 20th century, just 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 to now, I think uh, there's been a prevalence of uh, of the of the life of Mexico City in Mexican literature. Now you see it, uh, for example, with um, 
authors like Carlos Fuentes or uh, Roberto Bolaño, who's not Mexican, of course, but well, he kind of uh, ha kind of uh, did his whole uh, career, uh, part of his career in Mexico. So, so I'm going to consider him a little bit Mexican. And they always talk about Ciudad de Mexico, uh, Mexico City. And uh, Mexico City is this huge monster of a city, and it's super interesting uh, on its own and, and totally worth writing about it. But I think between Mexico City and the north of Mexico, you know, uh, like the border, who's um, given lots of stories about not only narco violence, but migrations and, 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 and about the, the perks of the lives of, of the people who work and cross the border every day. So I guess Mexican literature has uh, forgotten a little bit about the South. Mm -hmm. So I, I kind of thought it was necessary to talk about Veracruz. And, and what else could I, could I also talk about? One, one has to write about what is familiar to, to, to oneself. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to Fernanda Melchor about her first book in English, Hurricane Season. Well, I think in the in the American imaginary around Mexico, we mostly hear, like you said, a, we mostly associate the violence of the drug cartels and the epidemic of femicides in Mexico as occurring along the northern border or perhaps secondarily in Michoacan. But in reading about and doing preparation for my conversation with you, it was interesting to discover not only that 2018 and 2019 were the worst years in Mexican history for the disappearance and murder of women, but also Cristina Rivera Garza at World Literature Today was saying that 10 women are killed and 4,320 women are raped in Mexico every day, but that Veracruz, not the northern border, is, is the worst region right now for femicides. Um, and hurricane season opens in a fictional town called La Matosa with five boys playing down by the river and discovering the corpse of a girl that they called the witch. And then the rest of the book follows the lives of four different people in the town. And through their day-to-day -day lives, we're able to sort of piece together bit by bit what may or may not have happened that led to the murder. So I was hoping maybe we could have you talk to us about the witch as a figure and about the witch's mother, the legend and the lore that surrounds this character? Because while the witch feels like a real person in the story, she's imbued with a lot of contradictory fictions that are projected on her from the people in the town. So her identity feels like it moves between fiction and nonfiction in the minds of the, of the town people as we read the book. Well, one of the things that uh, we were talking about, the, the inspiration, uh, the, the uh, nonfiction inspiration from, for this novel, and one of, of the things uh, that uh, I found really interesting was the witchcraft. Because actually in real life in Veracruz, there are lots of people who, who believe in, in witchcraft. And I think it's become uh, also a way to find a sort of healthcare, traditional healing, and in a in a country where the health system is is very much 
damage and 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 um, not not very well uh, built in the first place. And at the same time, I thought that the witch was a great symbol, of course, that I could use this story to tell the story of a strong woman, fear, and and. Uh, Fear and and love by uh, its community, by by her community. I don't really think uh, in terms of uh, symbols or subjects when I start writing. I normally let myself uh, carry be carried away by characters. So you see, I had this uh, this murder, this triangle. Triangle. No, I had the victim, uh, the victim Marys. And I had the victim and the killers, and I had like this scenery, this uh, social uh, uh, environment that surrounded the, 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 this triangle. So I start by building, uh, and and of course I I must have a character that uh, that did witchcraft, but at the same time I didn't want it to. It's really difficult, you know, to 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 write about the supernatural. I, I'm, for example, uh, uh, I love Stephen King books. I'm uh, I, I love Clive Barker's uh, Baker's uh, work. Um, I, I love horror stories. I love the supernatural, but uh, in fiction, as fiction, you know, I'm not really a a, a believer in in supernatural in supernatural phenomena. So for me, it was kind of difficult to put myself into the mind and the body of a person who 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 did witchcraft for all for a living. So mm-hmm. I, I built, I started building this victim and its and her killers through through what other people around in the in the town said about them. So I start when I start when I start. Uh, to work really on the novel, I will sit on the computer in front of the computer and I will start hearing like the stories that a lot of women from the small village of La Matosa will tell me about who was the witch and who were their, their her killers. And I will start writing a lot, you know, like pages and pages uh, uh, about this contradictory versions of who was who and who did who and what, who what, you know, it, it was, it was the, the funniest part of, of the writing process because in fact, this was a, this was a really difficult novel to write, uh, full of uh, difficult to digest emotions for me. So actually the, the gossip part was, was, was very funny. And I start building the characters like that. And after a while, I I I realized I didn't want it. I, I didn't want uh, to write a novel filled with testimonies, you know, just testimonies like voices and voices and voices. I wanted uh, uh, a narrative voice that could like uh, take all these voices and 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 make it into one that could do all the stuff the narrator in, in Hurricane Season does, you know that. That could be uh, uh, talking about a character from the outside in a very objective, uh, even cruel kind of a, a way, and then being inside 
of the of the character and and for me it was the the only way possible to talk about the witch because of my history and the the history of the region and and to be able to construct a mystery and 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 the mystery of a personality and not ruin it for me it was that uh, I had to do that to build from the outside uh, to the center of the inner of the story and it sort of creates a a hurricane-like structure where the witch is at the center of the story, but never given a voice. So the witch is almost constructed through the storm of all of this gossip about her, but not really granted personhood her, herself. Like she's, she's laughed at for how she dresses or speaks or behaves, but at the same time, everyone seems to need her. The women go to her for herbal treatments for abortion and the men go there for sex parties, even though they're proclaiming publicly that she disgusts them. But the part of the story that leaps out to me is that her mother is not only accused of, of killing the witch's mother who was originally called the witch is not only accused of killing her husband, but most notably of casting a curse that killed her two sons. I wondered if that was a nod to the the mythology around La Llorona, who drowns her own children and then roams the earth crying for them and stealing the souls of other children in the process. And are, are you are you making a connection with the witch and La Llorona or perhaps other Mexican or Veracruz specific ghosts or spirits that that I might not be aware of? Um, yes, of course. Uh, with La Llorona. A traditional mythical figure. Uh, some uh, historians uh, trace her back to the before the the colony, before uh, uh, to the Aztec uh, uh, Empire even. And I thought all all of these stories of tragic women, you know, uh, that uh, that uh, renounce to their sacred. Uh, uh, obligations as women, you know, as mothers. And the, the history, uh, the story of La Llorona is a woman who betrays uh, her children to please a lover. So she decides to kill uh, her children because she wants to be with her lover. And she's condemned to spend the whole eternity, you know, uh, hunting the city of Mexico, crying, my children, my children, mis hijos, mis hijos. And they're, they're mostly stories of women getting punished, right? So, yes, I wanted to play with the idea of, uh, of these uh, old dramas, or, or these, these uh, tragic uh, women figures. Uh, there's also... Um, Another legend that's uh, in the in hurricane season that's about the the girl in white, and it's a it's a story about uh, you know you go if you're a boy you wake up at night and uh, I don't know you want to do mischief and 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 you you go out of the house and you hear a voice calling your name. And when you turn around is the, the, the girl in white and it's a girl totally dressed in white. And uh, her face is so horrific that you drop dead at that time. Right. 
and those stories were uh, haunting for me when I was a child. Uh, when I was a child, I, you know, I was I was one of those uh, little girls that couldn't couldn't uh, take horror stories, but at the same time wouldn't stop wanting to listen to them. So kind of a, you know, I remember going to parties and and we all at the end we all end up sitting in a circle telling like campfire stories, but without the campfire, right? And I remember being fascinated by those kinds of stories. So I wanted I, I wanted I wanted to use them as um, as a sort of a, a, a scenery and a sort of symbols also to talk about the fear of women. Finally, I think misogyny and femicide uh, at the end uh, they are based on an, an, a tremendous horrible fear of women. Uh, the fear of women as authoritarian figures, but also the fear of women uh, as her capacity to give birth and to bring about the unknown. You know, there's, there's, I think there's a, a mythical instance where women uh, are considered to have a, a strength, a, a particular strength, not shared by 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 any other sex. So. I don't know. I thought it was it was it was fun to talk about that, and I really wanted to write a story where I could understand myself. I, I think I'm always trying to write something because I want to understand what I'm writing, and I wanted to understand how it could be so easy in a country like Mexico to be a woman and to be killed almost for nothing and nothing happens, you know? I think that's horrendous and, and one of the most devastating things that is going to take a huge, and it's taken a huge toll already in Mexican culture, the way women are considered to be dispendable, you know? Like, how easy is to kill a woman and not be punished? But in fact, in Mexico, one of the I think the most important problem of our society is not even poverty. I think it's impunity. It's uh, the, the the impossibility of finding justice. And I think this, it, it is a huge problem that's taking a, a terrible toll in in the minds of, uh, in the souls of, of also of uh, Mexican citizens. I, I want to talk more about that. But right before we do, I, was, I wanted to ask you one more question question about mythologies that's more Veracruz-specific than La Llorona, because in the fictional story, Hurricane Season, the capacity of the witch to create curses and poisons seems very much tied to the buried history of colonial violence, because the herb she harvests for the poisons literally grows from the ruins of ancient pre-colonial tombs that got buried in a hurricane landslide. And the town itself is built on the ruins and bones of the previous town swallowed by a landslide. And in the opening to to your nonfiction essay, Reina Esclava o Mujer, Queen, Slave, or Woman, you talk about how your father felt the center of Veracruz was full of ghosts. Also how the very first painting of Veracruz 
shows ghosts drunk with dirty faces lying in alleyways. And I was hoping you could talk about this, this real life ghostliness of Veracruz, but maybe more specifically about Ivan Helena Tejada, because it feels like the way that maybe in a larger Mexican sense, parents would use La Llorona to scare their children to not stray. In Veracruz, it seems like Ivan Helena Tejada, a real person, was used in the same way to get when, to get uh, children to behave or to eat their vegetables. I think it has to do with uh, Veracruz being uh, a really old city and an antique city. Well, for the new world, of course. Uh, this this year, uh, Veracruz was 500 years old. It has something to do with this uh, verbal quality of uh, of of uh, speech in in Veracruz of of communication. Uh, as the stories are transmitted from person to person, from generation to generation, they kind of um, became legends uh, instead of uh, actual facts. So, but, but I think that's something that happens everywhere. But it is true that Veracruz uh, shares something special uh, that I found in very few cities most of them associated with the Caribbean. Uh, I'm thinking uh, San Juan, Puerto Rico, for example. They are very much alike, Veracruz, some parts, Veracruz and San Juan. Or I'm thinking also um, New Orleans. Well, I've, I have to admit, I've never been to New Orleans. I'd love to. But it, it, it is one of those cities that you've read some so much about it in novels and seen so much about it, about them in, in movies and, and, and that you kind of get to know them. And, and there was a time where there was a steamboat that went directly from Veracruz to New Orleans. So that kind of, you know, that black magic or tropical coastal uh, fluvial also, because Veracruz has, has lots of uh, rivers and, there is there is a similarity in in mm. food in flavors that uh, are very much alike. So as legends are also important and folk tales are also important in in some of these cities of the south of the United States, the same things happened in in Veracruz. And I think my dad was pretty much like influenced because he was not from Veracruz. He came to Veracruz when he was 10 mon months old. He was born in Baja California, uh, very near La Paz. And his whole family of eight brothers and sisters uh, traveled to Veracruz uh, uh, at that time when it took a week, you know, to make that, that trip with my grandmother. And he grew up in Veracruz. And one of the first homes in which he lived was a really small one-bedroom a small little house in the center of, of Veracruz port. And he remembered uh, the, the, the vibe and the legends the women told him. Uh, he used to tell me that there was um, a beheaded monk that used to make his appearance uh, very near the cathedral because uh, a lot of centuries ago, uh, during a pirate invasion, there were lots of people killed 
in that particular place. So my 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 dad always thought that some of the uh, violent uh, atmosphere, the, the the massacre atmosphere, pervaded in that place. And I remember also a story they they used to tell me when he used to tell me when I was a, a child about um, uh, also a, a behaved man, a ghost that uh, that walked uh, from a street in in Veracruz and end up in the he will the, the ghost will walk from downtown to the beach and then he, the the ghost will uh, enter into the water and disappear. And before entering into the water, he will look for his head because he was a, a headless uh, man. And he told me that that story came from, um, uh, we had an invasion in 1914 in Mexico before the, the Great War. Uh, the United States invaded Mexico. One of the, one of the few times that uh, uh, you guys invaded Mexico and and it's supposedly it's it's a soldier, an American soldier who lost his head because of a canyon, a cannonball, tore his head up. And every night you will see this guy, you know, searching for his head in the with oh. water uh, in in the sea up up to up to his uh, his ankles. And I grew up with hearing stories like that. And of course, I I never seen anything myself. I will be. Uh, paranormal researcher if I, if I would, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I, instead I'm a writer. So, because I like, uh, I, I understood that there, there weren't lies, those stories, they were part of history. I, I understood that legions weren't lies, but were ways of telling history to the new generations, but in a very theatrical and, and, you know, emotive, uh, feel with pathos way. Yeah. I would like to return to what you were saying just before this around this climate of impunity, the way women can be murdered and and disappeared with no consequence. Because even though the hur- hurricane season opens with a femicide, what I think the book does a really great job of portraying is, is the millions of day-to-day, everyday way women are diminished um, it feels like it's also portraying a certain extreme form of capitalism. Most of the women in the story are prostitutes that are serving the local oil workers, and there's people with injuries who the trajectories of their lives have probably gone off the rails because of lack of access to proper medical care, but also the rumors around the witch and the witch's father and the witch, witch's lineage there's so many stories and, you know, did the, is the witch born of her mother and, and Satan, for instance, but the real answer seems to be that she's the product of a gang rape. Um, and I was hoping maybe we could talk a little bit about one of the character, one of the main characters in the book, Norma, the 13 year old girl who is escaping her town, who's been impregnated by her stepfather and is fleeing and, and ends up in La Matosa. Can, can you talk about Norma in relationship to some of the, the real life scenario for women in Mexico and the Mexican justice system and, and some of what you're trying or aspiring to capture in hurricane season with her? 
One of the most difficult things to understand about Mexico is the um, the variety of experiences that one person can live through a life depending on the social class uh, one was born to or, or move up to or from. I remember when I was a, a child, 12 years old, and uh, going to a school field, a school a trip field, and we went to a hospital, to a Red Cross hospital, I remember, in the center of, of Veracruz. And uh, there was a maternity uh, 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 wing in, in that hospital. And I remember that the doctor who was giving us a tour uh, in, in the in the in the premises and he we were like six great students most of the of the of the boys and girls there and he told us that in the maternity there were two girls who were our age and already having a child right and for me what it, it was shocking no it was impossible I, I couldn't picture myself having a child at, at 12 years old but Surrounding, you know, uh, my life as a middle class, you know, uh, uh, student, uh, I knew there was a society that allowed uh, that kind of a phenomenon. Uh, and for me, growing up was to realize the different ways a society could be violent toward women's. I remember when I was also like 10 years old and reading the newspaper. Yeah, a lot of uh, things that I write I came from the newspaper. In Mexico, we have a, a special gender uh, of journalistic, sensationalistic journalism. It's called Nota Roja. Uh, it, it's it's not a section per se. It's like the um, the criminal and justice information, but it's always tell like... Um, uh, in a very uh, sensationalistic and 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 dramatic way, like a, you know, like a fairy tale of horror, a kind of a. Um, and I remember reading about uh, I don't know the raping of a eight-year-old without saying her name, but th there was the story who talked about a man who raped an eight-year-old, and I was like, Mom, what's rape? And my mom was like, okay, it's when somebody do something you don't like to you. And I was like, okay. But it was everywhere. And growing up in that society, you realize it's it's everywhere. It's really everywhere. And it's at the same time horrifying. And at the same time, you familiarize yourself with it. And it becomes totally normalized after a while if if your parents if your uh, if your teachers aren't there telling you that that's not okay you take it like normal and i think that's the most horrible thing about uh the normalization of femicide and violence against against women i think that's the biggest problem in mexico that is so normalized it's so uh it's so something of every day, you know, and I think what I wanted to present with Norma and, and you know, in Mexico is also we, the rights of women, 
you know, uh, some once a, a person asked me about the fourth wave of feminism in Mexico, and I was like, oh my God, we haven't even like granted the second wave, you know, uh, uh, reproductive rights, con con uh, contraception in Mexico, still a matter of controversy. It's ridiculous. In the 21, in the 20, 21 first, in the 21st century, pardon, uh, it's still ridiculous that uh, uh, the the idea of give uh, contraception to 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 girls is is still, but but I know that happens in other countries, and I know that uh, even in the in the United States there are lots of controversy about it, and I just the only way I have to worry and think about these matters for me is to write story. So I write Norma, I wrote Norma stories and I wanted to make the reader totally helpless before Norma's misery because, and, and besides she's like the most innocent of the characters, you know, everyone has like, yeah, they're victims in a way, but also they're, they're, you know, they're responsible for a lot of things that has happened to them. But Norma, she's so young and so sweet and so clueless about life that, and so desperate and, and, and hungry for affection that she just, you know, uh, I, I wanted, I wanted the reader to be helpless in front of her and to listen to her story and to empathize. Uh, in Mexico, uh, still, there are lots of people who really, really has a lot of, has a big problem thinking in women as human beings, you know? Uh, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. And I grew up in a, in a, in, in a machist culture. I grew up in a, in a society that was like that. And for me, it was very difficult to break through. Uh, for a long time, uh, one way for me to deal with misogyny was to masculinize my thinking, no, my thought was to make myself be like a man, uh, intellectually. So I could, uh, you know, uh, uh be part of, um, uh, uh, an intellectual elite or a circle and things are beginning to change. And that's important to say it. Uh, I think there's. Of course, uh, the, the success of the feminism in the in the sixties and the seventies, of course, but I, I think uh, from ten years ago to now, the activism in, in uh, about, uh, for example, the legal interruption of um, of uh, abortion, uh, it has been a, a really important struggle for women in Mexico, but still, uh, I think there are concourse that could be, you know, like could disappear in any moment. I think our societies in general, not only Mexican society, but I think everywhere we're like regressing to conservatorism, to out to, to out authoritarianism. I think mm -hmm. it's that the world is a scary place, no? Uh, and and the people's reaction is always to go inside and go back and gather yourself and but we have to fight against these these impulses because 
we're not it is not only about our family it's about you know the the human race you made a reference to some of the recent hopeful things in terms of the recent strikes by women and and the me too testimonials by women in mexico does that seem promising to you at this point um it is because um women slowly start to realize their role in society that that what what that role could be not an imposed role but 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 something more free with more freedom and with more with more joy you know uh women are starting to realize that they don't have to be mother if they really don't want to be and that they don't have to get married if they don't want to that they can enjoy their bodies and their uh, sexuality as they please without uh, being, uh, have to be obedient to a particular religion. So I think the most important change is in the new regenerations. I think that the, the girls who are growing up in, in, in a most free atmosphere are, are happier. But also I, I realize that's, sometimes only possible in certain in certain, in certain uh, layers of the society because at the same time as you say it in Veracruz rural Veracruz is number one in femicides in, in whole Mexico and Mexico still as a country I think we're number one in teen pregnancy and teen and infant pregnancy which is horrible and still, there are lots of Mexico inside Mexico. You go to Mexico City and stay in a nice hotel in La Condesa, and you'll never see, for example, uh, the, the the rural part of uh, Veracruz or, or Guerrero or Michoacán, uh, as, as you said. I want to take this question of, of Norma as a character and bring it together with something we've been talking about, which is this question of the way that stories that we tell are sort of an overlay on top of reality or a disturbance of reality or or maybe simply part of reality. We see that in a lot of your essays, like the one about the UFO sightings near Veracruz that end up being planes full of cocaine, or your essay about a prison that is emptied out so that uh, a film or a movie financed by Mel Gibson <laughs> could be filmed in the prison, but then he hires people to be prisoners in the prison or actors as prisoners in the prison. But at the heart of the, the story that is hurricane season is another story that is told to us that we see Norma encountering specifically. It's this, it's a story that pregnant 13 year old Norma reads from a book called fairy tales for children of all ages, which she seems to be reading to make sense of both menstruation and why her period has stopped. And we're going to have Sophie Hughes, your, your translator, read that fairy tale for us in English, but I was hoping maybe first you could introduce us to it. Uh, anything that you'd want to say about the fairy tale and how you see it functioning in at the heart of the book. And then maybe we can hear a little bit of, of the music and syntax of that story in Spanish. 
It is a story that Norma finds in a in a little book, and she reads. And uh, by reading it, she kind of uh, realizes something about what's happening uh, with with her body. And in particular, it's a story that I really love. Uh, I, I really love as a child. Uh, it, it actually exists. And at the end of the book, I, I thank uh, Carmen Lira, who's the, uh, a Costa Rican uh, writer who wrote that uh, that story. And I always love it because, I don't know, uh, because of the song, you know? And there's there's a song that the witches sing constantly. And the hunchback, the, the two hunchbacks try to... Uh, uh, to, to, to complete a song. And I always, it's weird because um, every child I know that listens to that fairy tale sings the song kind of the same way. <laughs> and so I'm going to read a little, uh, a little bit in Spanish of the, um, the beginning of the, of the story. Un día que regresaba de la escuela, Norma se encontró tirada en la calle un librito de papel rústico con la portada de cartón rota, que se llamaba Cuentos de hadas para niños de todas las edades. Y al abrirlo al azar, lo primero que sus ojos vieron fue una ilustración en blanco y negro en donde un hombrecillo jorobado lloraba aterrado mientras un grupo de brujas con alas de murciélagos enterraban cuchillos en el bulto de su espalda. Y la ilustración era tan rara que sin importarle la hora ni la lluvia inminente, sin importarle tampoco que tenía que llegar a casa a lavar los trastes y encargarse de sus hermanos antes de que su madre llegara de la fábrica, Norma se puso a leer el cuento completo en la parada del camión, porque en casa no había nunca tiempo para leer nada. Y además ni se podía, con el barullo que montaban sus hermanos y el ruido de la televisión encendida y los gritos de su madre y las chanzas bufas de Pepe y la pila de tarea que tenía que hacer después de fregar las ollas de la comida que ella misma había cocinado al mediodía, antes de irse a la escuela. Así que se cubrió la cabeza con la capucha de la chamarra y encogió las piernas bajo la campana de su falda y se dispuso a leer completito el cuento aquel de los dos compadres jorobados, porque así se llamaba la historia, y que trataba de un jorobado que una tarde se perdía en el bosque cercano a su casa, un bosque oscuro y tenebroso en donde decían que las brujas se reunían para hacer sus maldades, y era por ello que el hombrecillo tenía tanto miedo de estar ahí perdido, sin poder hallar el camino de regreso a su casa, vagado en la penumbra hasta que se hizo de noche, y entonces vio una hoguera a lo lejos, y pensando que se trataba de algún campamento, corrió hasta allá, seguro ya de haberse salvado. ¿Y cuál fue su sorpresa? Cuando llegó al claro donde resplandecía la gigantesca fogata, y se dio cuenta de que aquello era un aquelarre, una reunión de brujas, de viejas horrorosas con garras en vez de manos, y alas de murciélago que danzaban macabremente en torno al enorme fuego mientras cantaban lunes y martes y miércoles tres, lunes y martes y miércoles tres, lunes y martes y miércoles tres, y reían estrepitosamente con sus horribles carcajadas de arpías y lanzaban aullidos a la luna llena. One day, on her way home from school, Norma found a little paperback book with a ripped cover and fairy tales for children of all ages written across it. And on opening it at random, the first thing she saw was a black-and-white illustration of a little hunchback crying, terrified, while a coven of witches with bat wings stabbed the hunch on his back. And the illustration was so strange that, ignoring the time and the imminent rain, 
ignoring the dishes waiting to be washed and her siblings who needed feeding before their mother got home from the factory. Norma sat down at the bus stop to read the whole story, because at home there was never time to read anything, and even if there were she wouldn't be able to, with her siblings' racket, the blare of the TV and her mother's constant yelling not to mention Pepe's fooling around or the piles of homework that awaited her each night after washing the pots, which she herself had used at noon before leaving for school. And so she pulled the hood of her coat over her head, folded her legs under her skirt, and she read the whole story from start to finish. The tale of the two hunchbacks, that's what the fairy tale was called. And it was about a hunchback who lost his way one evening in the woods close to his home dark and sinister woods where witches were said to meet to do their evil deeds. And that was why the little fellow was so frightened to find himself lost there, unable to find his way home, wandering blindly as night fell, until suddenly he spied a fire in the distance, and thinking it might be a campfire, he ran toward it, convinced that he'd been saved. So imagine his surprise when he arrived at the clearing with the gigantic fire only to realise it was a witch's sabbath, a coven of horrifying witches with bat wings and claws instead of hands, all dancing around the blazing fire in the most macabre fashion while they sang Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday 3, Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday 3, Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday 3 and they were cackling their terrible witchy cackles and howling up at the moon, and the hunchback, who, still unseen, had taken cover behind an enormous rock not far from the fire, listened to that cyclic chant and, unable to explain how, unable to explain the overwhelming urge that came over him, took a deep breath as the witches sang their next Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday three, jumped onto the rock and shouted at the top of his lungs, Thursday and Friday and Saturday six. His cry resounded with surprising force in that clearing, and on hearing him the witches froze where they were, petrified around the fire that was casting horrible shadows on their beastly faces. And seconds later they were all running around, hovering between the trees, shrieking and hollering that they had to find the human who'd said that. And the poor hunchback, once again crouched behind the rock, trembled at the thought of the fate awaiting him. But when at last the witches found him, they didn't hurt him, as he'd imagined. Nor did they turn him into a frog or a worm, or much less eat him. Instead, they took the man and cast spells to conjure enormous magical knives, which they used to cut off his hunch, all without spilling a drop of blood or hurting him at all because the witches were pleased that the little fellow had improved their song, which, truth be told, they were beginning to find a little boring. And when the hunchback saw that he no longer had a hump, that his back was completely flat and that he didn't have to walk hunched over, he was happy, enormously happy and contented. And as well as curing his hump, the witches also gave him a pot of gold and thanked him for having improved their song and before resuming their witch's sabbath, they showed him the way out of that enchanted part of the woods, and the little man ran all the way home and straight to his neighbour, who was also a hunchback, to show him his back and the riches he'd received from the witches. And his neighbour, who was a mean, jealous man, believed that he deserved those gifts more, because he was more important and more intelligent, 
and those witches must be real fools to go around giving away gold just like that. And by the following Friday, the jealous hunchback had convinced himself that he should copy his neighbour. And as night fell, he entered the woods in search of that coven of cretinous hags, and he walked for hours in the darkness until he too lost his way. And just as he was about to collapse against a tree and cry out in fear and desperation, he glimpsed, in the distance, in the thickest, gloomiest part of the woods, a fire surrounded by witches dancing and singing Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday three, Thursday and Friday and Saturday six, Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday three, Thursday and Friday and Saturday six. And with that, the jealous neighbour scurried toward them and hid behind the same enormous rock. And at the next round of Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday three, Thursday and Friday and Saturday six, the vile little man who, despite believing himself more intelligent than his neighbour, was not the smartest of fellows, opened his mouth, took the deepest breath he could, cupped his hands around his lips and shouted, Sunday seven! with all his might. And when the witches heard him, they froze on the spot, petrified in the middle of their dance, and that dimwit of a hunchback emerged from his hiding place and opened his arms to reveal himself, thinking they'd all flock to him to fix his hunchback and hand him a pot of gold even bigger than the one they'd given his neighbour. But instead he saw that the witches were furious, clawing at their chests and yanking out great clumps of flesh with their own nails, scratching their cheeks and pulling the flowing hair that crowned their horrific heads, roaring like wild beasts and screaming, Who's the fool who said Sunday? Who's the wretch who ruined our song? And then they caught sight of the mean little man and zoomed towards him. And with hexes and jinxes they conjured the hump they'd removed from the first man and put it on him. And as a punishment for his imprudence and greed, they placed it on his front, and instead of a pot of gold, they pulled out a pot of warts that hopped out of the container and immediately stuck to the body of that despicable man, who was left with no choice but to return to the town like that, with two humps instead of one, and warts all over his face and body, and all for having come out with his Sunday seven, the book explained. And in the final illustration of the story, the jealous neighbour appeared with two humps, one deforming his back, and the other making him look pregnant. And that was the moment Norma finally understood how silly she'd been to think that the fateful Sunday seven was the blood that stained her panties each month, because clearly what it referred to was what happened when that blood stopped flowing, what happened to her mother after a spell of going out at night in her flesh-coloured tights and her high heels, when, from one day to the next, her belly would start to swell reaching grotesque proportions before finally expelling a new child, a new sibling for Norma, a new mistake that generated a new set of problems for her mother, but above all for Norma. Sleepless nights, crushing tiredness, reeking diapers, mountains of clothes covered in baby vomit, and crying, unbroken, ceaseless crying. Yet another open mouth demanding food and whining, yet another body, to keep an eye on, and care for, and discipline, when her mother returned to work, exhausted and as hungry, cranky, and grubby as the youngest of Norma's siblings. Her mother, just a child herself, who Norma had to feed and stroke and comfort, massaging baby oil into her calloused feet and her aching muscles, 
stiff from all those hours spent on her feet performing the same movements over and again at her sewing machines. And above all, Norma had to listen. Yes, above all that. Listen to her mother's woes, her grumbling and griping, the same admonishments as always. And she had to nod and agree and look at her mother in the eyes with a smile on her face and kiss her forehead and pat her back as she wept because if Norma could just help her calm down, if Norma could help her unburden her chest, perhaps her mother wouldn't feel compelled to lock herself in the bathroom and scream that she wanted to die. Perhaps she wouldn't go out and get drunk looking for affection in the caresses of strange men or let herself get hurt by those bastards who are all the same. Bastards who'll pluck the moon and the stars from the sky for you, but then, when push comes to shove, toss you out like a filthy old rag. We've been listening to Fernanda Melchor and Sophie Hughes read in Spanish and English, respectively, from Hurricane Season. I wanted to ask you about the portrayal of violence in Hurricane Season and, and any deliberations you had about how to do it. Because you've said that there's something carnivalesque about the violence in Mexico. And in your piece, Veracruz Se Escribe Con Zeta, you touch on some examples of this, of dismemberments and beheadings. And in my own readings, I learned about the warlord Angel, a member of the Gulf Coast cartel Los Zetas, who would barbecue his victims or scalp them alive. And he would make these phone videos of human spit roasts and hacksaw dismemberments that were called Mexigore and that were used as propaganda films. Your book doesn't portray any of these things, but we are inside the minds of people who are doing and thinking horrible things. It, and it made me think of the review in the New York Times, a very glowing review in the New York Times by Julian Lucas, where he compares hurricane season both to the gothic grotesque of Flannery O'Connor and also to Marlon James and his gunmen in A Brief History of Seven Killings. And Lucas brings up a philosophy that Marlon James has that I also spoke to him about when he was on the show. And that is the, his belief that sometimes one needs to risk pornography in the portrayal of violence. And it's something that Lucas thinks that you do risk. And Lucas says in, his, in the review, at times she enters so deeply into the psyche of sexual violence that she skirts the voyeurism risked by any representation of cruelty. In his posthumously published novel, 2666, Roberto Bolaño deployed a device of alienating repetition to narrate the murders of women in Mexico clinically detailing so many cases that they began to lose their tabloid charge. By contrast, hurricane season is saturated with the language of abuse. Men ecstatically molesting their daughters, boys boasting about how exactly they'll rape a friend who they've heard is the engineer's twink, an irate grandmother who threatens her disobedient girls with the specter of lesbians with brooms assaulting them in juvie. By design, Melchor offers little vantage beyond this world of predators and violently prejudiced prudes. Neither type seems able to decouple desire from extraction and domination. The crime is not an act, 
but an entire atmosphere, which Melchor captures in language as though distilling venom. So I was hoping maybe you could talk about this because it feels like the impulse to write the book is one of, of critique. It's, uh, it's to critique this gendered violence that, that has become an atmosphere. But the voice of critique is not overtly obvious in the book except through the enactment of these voices of people who are carrying it out. So I was, I was curious if you could talk about your own philosophy, whether it's similar to Marlon James or, um, and what were some of your, your deliberations around how to do it, how to do a portrayal of violence, how to show within the minds of perpetrators, um, violence without, perpetrating violence yourself? I actually, uh, I agree with Marlon James. Uh, he is um, an author that I admire. Um, I think it was in one interview uh, for uh, El País uh, in Spain that he talked about uh, you need a lot of self-control when you write about violence. Uh, and, he give, and he gave the example of the uh, Picasso's Guernica. You know, this huge painting and beautiful and horrible at the same time. And I think autocontrol, I think uh, a care with pace. And I don't know if I have a philosophy uh, uh, as such, but I do think that violence is one of those topics that you can just you cannot just uh, uh, write and see what happens. I I'm always afraid uh, with the with, with I, I'm always afraid of uh, questions about violence because when you talk in abstract about uh, violence, you kind of sounds you kind of sound ridiculous and 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 pompous and and it's so difficult to get carried away with uh, philosophical stuff in which you don't even believe, right? So I think I what's important for me is that I write from a wound inside myself, inside my own ego. Uh, we all have wounds, you know. Uh, I write from that sort of a gap inside myself and I try to liberate uh, and name the most awkward uh, feelings that I can find there. So I don't, I don't really know. Um, I, my, my worst fear with this novel was that finally it came out and, and sometimes it happened. Sometimes it happened that it was published and some people read it and say that I did was pornography. <laughs> uh, violent depiction of uh, sex and crime and mindless, mindlessly, uh, mindlessly uh, violent, just like that, you know, gratuitous. And that was my worst fear when I wrote this novel. Mm -hmm. I, I fear that all the homophobic content, uh, people will think 
that I was the one thinking, right? What I, what I wanted to do was, was to show. Uh, I, I, for me, the defining was to find a narrative voice that allowed me to be inside and outside my characters. So I could be inside them and see what they taught and be outside them and kind of have this sort of uh, objective, uh, sometimes even satirical uh, voice who's this, who's telling what's the character doing. But it is always a topic I feel insecure about because even though violence as a phenomena worries me, as a social phenomena worries me, it's not that I wrote about it because uh, because of an agenda, a political agenda of my part. It was something that really deeply disturbed me to understand it in myself. And I think it had to do a lot with, um, by the time I wrote the novel, I was uh, living with my ex, with a, with a partner uh, I had for six years. And in those six years, I raised uh, his his daughter from six years old to 12 years old. So I became a mommy, you know, a, a stay at home mom for six years. And a lot of the experience of, uh, of motherhood, a lot of my worries of being a woman and being a girl in this society and raising a girl and raising a woman in this society are, are depicted in uh, hurricane season characters. So I, I really would love to show you a philosophy and and uh, show you guys how intelligent I am and how well <laughs> I can use words. But I am a writer who writes from the gut a lot. And for me, violence is present in all the human interactions. And it's something unavoidable. And we cannot escape from violence. As a humans, we have the we have the work and we have to the, the obligation to to repress, to repress this violence, to uh, turn it into something useful for society. But at the same time, we're just animals uh, at the core and we have to fight that. Uh, for me, that's the devil, the, the animal-like part in, 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 our, in, our, in our selves. Well, I wanted to take that comment you made about homophobia and unpack that a little bit because there's some really interesting things that have been written about hurricane season. And I'm thinking of both something that Sophie Hughes references and also Traherne Falvey at 3AM Magazine, who wrote this, I don't know if you read this piece, but this incredible analysis of hurricane season called The Fucker and the Fucked. Oh, yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And they both cite the writings of Octavio Paz on the word La Chingada, in relationship to your writing. And Falvey says, in attempt to define the national character of Mexico, Octavio Paz writes at length about the verb chingar, which can be translated as to fuck. He calls it a magical word with various meanings, but which always contains the idea of aggression, an emergence from oneself to penetrate another. And then Falvey goes on to talk about how this town of yours, La Matosa, is described by you as the ass end of nowhere 
and that the characters in your book explore the many ways in which people fuck each other over or fuck each other up or simply fuck each other. But I also wondered about this question of the fucked and the fucker in relationship specifically to homophobia and transphobia, because as the novel progresses, the gender of the witch seems less clear and that perhaps the men are going there to have sex with a man and they're going pretending that the man is a woman or that perhaps that this witch isn't a man but non-binary or perhaps trans but also because characters like Brando would only seem to consider themselves homosexual if they're being fucked by a man, if they're being penetrated, but not if they fuck them. So he is very homophobic, but he also is engaging in homosexual activity. So in a way, it feels like the war that's taking place in La Matosa isn't just a war against women, but against the feminine and the feminized, regardless of the gender of the person. It's, it's a phallocentric society. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, and, and now that, uh, that I think of it, I think this carnivalization, uh, it's really present in, uh, in masculine sexuality, uh, overall in, in the novel, because there's like a subversion all the time, uh, of, uh, of what's desire and what, do people must do with desire. So there's a sort of uh, confusion. Uh, for example, with this uh, character, Brando. Brando, Brando's trouble, main trouble is that he can have what he really desires because, because what he desires is totally forbidden for society. So he has to uh, find ways to express his desire without losing face, without uh, being ostracized, and overall uh, being not being rejected by himself, not hating himself. So that and that uh, and that leads him to to hating himself, precisely. But that's the problem with a with a phallocentric society, uh, as it as it happens in Mexico, you know, uh, phallocentric as you know, centered in 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 the phallus, in in, in the genitalia of the men genitalia, masculine genitalia, uh, everywhere in Mexico. Uh, it, sometimes you can think that uh, Mexican men are kind of a little boys, you know, always worried about their deities and drawing them everywhere and and uh you know for example in mexico saying stuff or or a thing you say america that is you know the dick uh, like a like a uh a, a bad way of saying a penis so they're always hanging around with the dick in their mouths <laughs> saying that word all the time so it's kind of a I don't know. I don't know much of uh, psycho, social, you know, uh, aspects of, of this this kind of sexuality, but I I wanted to draw in in the in the big picture. I wanted to draw. Of course, I wanted to include some characters extremely worried about uh, the, the genital aspects of uh, sexuality, 
And and in the case of, of Randall, I think it's clear. It is true. And for many men I know, if they are the active part of a homosexual relationship, they are not being homosexual. They are just so manly that they can fuck a guy, you know? Right. And I think uh, in 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 opposition, uh, feminine sexuality is not as clear, uh, clearly depicted as as this kind of uh, immature men's uh, relationships. I think with women, what happens is I was concentrating in 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 another kind of phenomena. Uh, in the case of the women, the the women characters, I was overall worried about the reproduction of misogyny between women and the uh, reproduction of uh, machismo between uh, generations of women. And I was worried also of uh, talking about the mother and daughter uh, relationship uh, when, especially when the mother doesn't, uh, doesn't, doesn't get to fulfill her, her, her role as a mother. And, and you have these uh, children who have to parentify their fathers and, and mothers. And I wanted to talk about that too. I think one of the, besides desire, one of the constant uh, themes of the novel is also love. And in Spanish, it's, it's curious because I decided to take out the word amor, that's love in Spanish. I decided to take that word out of the novel because I thought the characters lived in a world where love was impossible, where love didn't exist. And if you if you see, uh, most of the characters are looking for love, are 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 desiring are desiring to be loved, but they can't be loved because they don't really know what love it is, and they're also searching desperately uh, for for meaning through love. And that's kind of the education I received growing up and listening to pop music, pop Mexican music of the 80s and the 70s. And I don't know, I grew up in a, in a kind of a dysfunctional home and my mom was, my, my dad was an alcoholic and my mom was codependent. And what I learned when I was a child was that love hurts, you know, like a Roy Orbison song. Love has to hurt. Love uh, is sacrifice. Uh, the way you have to love is love the other person more than you love yourself. And that kind of mixes also with a Catholic, uh, you know, uh, uh, um, kind of a, a feel also. And that, that's the lesson I received when I was a child. And for me, growing up, finding love, finding a, a, a true uh, a relationship of trust, was a very difficult task, no? And I had to go through a, certainly a deconstruction of, of that idea of 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 love as sacrifice, but it, that is really present in the novel. And I think in Mexico it it has received a lot a lot of attention from readers, because a lot of people from my generation have the same the same trouble. So it is not only a novel about. Uh, the dark realities of of the Mexico of today. It's also, La Matosa, it's also a metaphor of my own childhood, of 
what it is like to grow up in a home that sometimes can feel like a concentration camp. Well, I also just to speak to your fears around the pornography or the the homophobia, and never, at least for me as a reader, and that's one of the marvelous mysteries of this book for me is that we're so steeped in misogyny and violence and homophobia in the book, but I never it never once crossed my mind that you or the book itself were homophobic or misogynistic or pro glorification of violence. I don't know how you do it. I know you don't have a philosophy to share, um, <laughs> but, but it is, it is, it's fascinating to me to feel so close to the voices of these people who don't necessarily share your worldview and yet feel like the novel still maintains some sort of um, distinct identity from those people successfully i uh was really impressed uh a few years ago when i found out uh, a little bit late i guess that uh, jt leroy uh, the writer was in fact a, a woman laura albert and for me it was a lesson uh because you know i'm a great fan of uh, jt leroy's uh, books uh, sarah and the heart is a deceitful thing about all things and uh, I love his his characters and uh, the, the atmosphere and for me it was a uh, reading reading uh, interviews of uh, Laura Albert trying to explain why, why she did that well she she uh, deliberately lied and and uh, well you know the whole story you know you know the whole story better than me but for me it was like a lesson about how you can totally detach yourself when you write and you get to be someone else totally. And f I always wanted the, the, the writing process to be about becoming someone else, about trying to understand myself through the invention of someone else of this, um, experimental egos we call we call characters mm. and not only an act of uh, ventriloquism I, I wanted really to 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 believe in the in the possibility of being the other I one of the things that amazed me the most when I start reading novels I remember the first novel I read was the adventures of uh, Huckleberry Finn and uh, I, I really loved it I was seven years old, and suddenly I wasn't just a small girl uh, lying in bed in his in her bedroom in a small middle middle class home in a coastal city in Mexico, but I was, you know, a, a, a boy uh, uh, sailing through the Mississippi, you no, know, having amazing adventures. That's that's the power of literature, and I wanted to be able to do that. I, I promise after I read that novel that I will become a writer. That's the only thing that ever interests me since that age on. I always wanted to be a writer and for me there was never a plan B not to be a writer. I, I even studied uh, uh, journalism because 
I wanted to have um, a métier, a, a, a um, profession, uh, to be able to write. Uh, not, not in Mexico is 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 strange because we don't have so much uh, these uh, creative writing schools. Uh, it's it's more like um, you study literature, but you study that to be a critic or a English or, or a literature teacher. But I wanted to have a, a, a profession to to you know um, to to have a salary and 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 have a, a paycheck every every month and dedicate myself to write when whenever I could. And I thought journalism was like a good choice because uh, it, it, it meant working with words also. And I've always been, um, it doesn't really look like, but I'm really shy, in fact. And uh, I wanted to study journalism because that will uh, push me towards people, push me towards the reality, push me. Uh, to do th stuff and not just lying around in bed reading novels. So I think it was a great decision and one of the uh, greatest lessons I've learned in writing, I learned it from, from journalism, from the practice of journalism. Well, it's interesting because to return back to your, your, your book of nonfiction essays, one of the first things you talk about in your author's note to your book of nonfiction is the origins of the word fiction that in Latin means to shape and that all stories are quote unquote fictitious in the sense that they are shaped and cannot be mistaken for real life. And maybe that would be an interesting place to talk just a little bit about the shape of the book. One of the things that jumps out to me as a reader, other than the sort of hurricane structure that you have this, the silence at the, at the center of the, of the, the witch being at the center is that your sentences are super long and propulsive and sometimes these sentences can go on for many pages and and each chapter itself is one long uninterrupted paragraph and i wondered if you could speak about that is that coming from a specific lineage of of writers or is that something you discovered yourself doing without much thought um talk to us about what's going on there Yes, the the form of the novel came out of, out of necessity, I guess, out of, out of necessity. Um, I needed a voice that could hold together lots of um, heterogeneous uh, material, like you know, like voices, but also um, uh, an, a, a narrator, but also dialogues, and a voice that could go back. Uh, to the past, you know, decades ago, and then uh, move forward, almost flying to the present, to the actual instant. And it was very difficult to find a voice like that, uh, considering the novel started like a chorus of uh, voices of women talking about a murder, talking about the witch. I always thought that I should preserve the mystery of the witch as much as I could. I always had this intuition because she's such a strange character. It's one of the the, the uh, most loved characters uh, that uh, mine uh, that uh, of me. Uh, it's one of my favorite characters. 
and she's so contradictory. She seems to be so many things at the same time. And it's like her shape, like, you know, like a wedge, like a real wedge. It's like her shape is always changing. Shape, like her shape is always, you know, like, like she's made of, um, she's make a, she's made of a crows, you know, like dark birds that turn over. And I, I wanted to give that impression. So what we know about her is always what the women are telling or what other people are telling. And as we go deep into the novel with, with each character's testimony, we discover another truth. And I like I, I like a lot I like that a lot about the novels that they have surprises that they have like you know these turns and these these um, these these constant surprises and moments of uh, discovery that the writer allows the reader to have and that that the that the writer constructs with the reader. Because a book without a reader is nothing. It's just, you know, like paper and, and letters, printed letters. And a book only exists in the, in the mind of, uh, of, the, of the reader. So in, in trying to construct this mystery of the witch, I always thought that if I went inside her, if I went inside her thoughts, and reveal too much about her, I will, I will, I, I was going to be uh, disappointed, and the reader was going to be disappointed, because it was better to build uh, the figure of the witch in mystery than to reveal too much, and and I don't know. There, there's also a void inside the witch, in in her personality in the way she was used by her own mother to be a witch without having a choice. No? Um, there's also this, this uh, hurting gap inside her, also looking for love like everyone else in the, in the, in the book. But I didn't want to, to say it like that. I, I, I wanted to, to be more subtle about it. I wanted to construct this character differently. The same with Luismi. The character of Luismi also uh, is pretty much silent. We never get to see him from the inside. We never get to see what he really thinks about lots of things. We never get to understand why he did what what he had to do, or what he thought he had to do. Yeah. So I think it's it's mystery. I think. Well, I want to ask you a little bit more about silence in your work, because not only do we have the sort of the the calm in the eye of the hurricane being that the central characters themselves don't have a point of view, that they're silent, and also perhaps the eye of the hurricane is also the absence of love, or or maybe it's love and the search for that love that's absent. But I was also reading your your acceptance speech when you won the Anna Sagers Prize in Germany. And you talk about how your mother's side of the family were Jewish refugees who found safe harbor in Mexico, but that members in your family had very different ways to approach what had happened to them. That your great aunt Lucy, a doctor who was sent to Auschwitz, 
that after the war, she wrote a memoir called Auschwitz, a doctor's story where she bore witness to the atrocities she encountered. But your grandfather, Lucy's brother, brother, he didn't find a creative outlet to deal with what happened. In fact, he prohibited your grandmother and great aunts from learning German and hid your family's Jewish past as a secret and insisted that his descendants be considered only Mexican and not Jewish. And I, I thought about these two different paths when you said to Sophie Hughes in Granta magazine, even if literature deals with violence, it actually fights our worst human tendencies because it favors language over silence and empathy over hate. For me, this means I must try to tell a story in a way that prompts the reader to wonder what are the two differences between her and this ruthless character she's reading about. And I wondered if you see this belief in, in language over silence, is it somehow connected to this inherited trauma of your own ancestors that in some way you're, you're choosing Lucy's path rather than Manfredo's path? Um, yeah, definitely. Um, I think it's it's hard to be the person in a family who decides to break the silence. Um, it, it's it's always it, you know in, in this fight between good and evil and light and dark, there's also warmth and and there's the silence, and it doesn't necessarily mean that dark is uh, bad or evil is necessarily is not necessary, or that silence is also not necessary. I'm trying to understand uh, because you know each each interview, uh, each 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 time I have to trying to explain what I did in hurricane season. Each each time I I I have the opportunity to to express myself, and even in another language, uh, I had to do it in French also and with German translators. Wow! Uh, it's always a challenge to try to to express. Uh, the the real uh, nature of uh, of what I wanted to do. So I I guess that we also need silence, the same as we also need dark, and the same we also need evil to exist in the world. Um, and I was trying to uh, honor silence in in the character of the witch. And in the and in the moment of the crime, for me it was a matter of respect. Okay, I, I was trying to uh, shed light into into a phenomena, into a crime, into a society, a small society, rural society in Mexico, uh, into a very much particular family or, or families, and at the center of this crime, at the end there was two people. And I just couldn't go inside without thinking I was going too far. So I had to leave a little mystery behind because as humans, we also need that kind of mystery. I don't know how. It's like mystery and silence is that uh, little piece missing in, in those small puzzles. Um, you, you know these quadrangular puzzles where you have to sh shift the little pieces, no? Mm -hmm. And there's always a blank space that allows 
the other pieces to move. So silent works that way and secret works that way. And one of the things that are most beautiful about literature is uh, trying to resolve that enigma without uh, having to resolve it at the same time. Just being able to sense it, it's already a, a beautiful experience. And I thought that novel needed that. I, I think there's always things of which um, it is better not to speak about at that precise moment to not break an effect. Well, I will be speaking to your translator, Sophie. And one of the things that I want to talk to her about for the bonus audio is the difficulty or challenges of translating your language, which is very colloquial and Veracruz specific. Um, a lot of profane vocabulary that I imagine would be really difficult to translate into <laughs> English. Um, but you've described it as wanting a language that, that you wanted a language to be coastal and torrid and that you looked to Juan Rulfo who managed the way you described it is he managed to paradoxically create a new Mexican language with the same old words. But what's interesting to me is that while your project is very deeply particular and very regionally specific, you often are mentioning influences that are American also, like you've mentioned JT Leroy and Stephen King, but you've also mentioned in other places just in general, not specific to hurricane season, David Lynch's Blue Velvet, Dennis Cooper, William Faulkner. And you do do some translation from English to Spanish. And I guess I was just curious how, if at all, you see these interests or influences from the Anglophone world f finding themselves in hurricane season. Is, is, there, a, is there any of that? Um, cross-cultural pollination happening? I definitely think uh, it is happening. Uh, one of the novels that changed forever what I thought what was a novel, it, it was um, uh, Blood Meridian uh, from uh, Cormac uh, McCarthy. Yes. And, and recently I've been reading a lot of uh, A.M. Holmes. I really love her short stories. I think I she's amazing. She's, you know, like, oh, I, I don't know, I have to think uh, she's like a She's like a straight arrow, you know, that, mm -hmm. that goes just into the, into the mark. And um, I think it's pretty common for, uh, for Mexicans to absorb and consume American culture. What is, more, what is more common is like mainstream culture, you know, mainstream TV and, and uh, mainstream music. But literature is, is always been important for me. And... Uh, I think Spanish as a language and and Latin American as a culture, uh, we have a language that's really welcoming, open to another languages. There, there's lots of books that's that are translated to Spanish. So um, we Mexicans can read a lot of books. We we tend to read lots of books that are written by. Um, many people from all over the world and of course uh, americans are are a important part and I, I don't know i think it has to be with um uh, uh, for me it has to do a lot with cinema 
because I remember when I was 14 years old, 15, and I got a, a, a bootleg copy of uh, Blue Velvet in a VHS uh, mm-hmm. tape recorder, in a tape and a BH tape. And I saw that year I saw, and I saw David Cronenberg's Videodrome uh, um, also. Mm-hmm. And for me, you know, that kind of um, cinema for me was like, like an entrance to a whole different way of telling things and a, and a whole different aesthetics. Uh, I remember for me were also turning points uh, this movie Gumo from um, Harmony Corinne, directed by Harmony Corinne, oh, yeah. or Kids uh, from Larry, uh, by Larry Clark. And I, I don't know why. I, I, I think there, there was long time ago, maybe a taboo of uh, consuming uh, American uh, products, cultural products, uh, thinking it was a bad thing. But I don't really think nobody, nobody else thinks that. And I don't know. The states have the most, uh, one of the most. Uh, a few of the most uh, impressive artists in all fields of the human uh, arts. So why not profit from that? Why not uh, learn from that? And I learned a lot from David Lynch. I, I just, yeah. I, I love what his work, I love his, his sceneries, uh, his images. And for me, he's such an inspiring artist. Uh, it's, it's really, really inspiring. Well, before we finish, I want to return to the beginning of the book. We talked about one of the epigraphs from the novel The Dead Girls, but there is a second epigraph that's an English-language epigraph from Yeats, a Yeats poem called Easter 1916 that goes, He too has resigned his part in the casual comedy. He too has been changed in his turn, transformed utterly. A terrible beauty is born. And I wondered about your choice to have one of the epigraphs be a poem that describes an Irish rebel being executed by a British firing squad, but also with the Easter imagery of of something being born or or resurrected out of something terrible. Well, I, I think I meant it more in an ironic way when I decided to use that epigraph. Uh, it, the intention was ironic, but I don't think I managed to, to explain that a lot. But, you know, I think deep down, in, in some cases of femicide, of uh, men killing women in the, you know, in the, in the throes of, you know, hate and passion and, Passionate crime, as as we, as we call it, femicide. Sometimes I think, for some men, some young men, it, killing women is kind of a rebellion. Killing women is kind of a. Uh, I don't want to say too much of the novel, but I, I think, I think Brando commits, what he. I think Brando and Luis do do what they do because they cannot kill their mothers. They feel aggravated by their mothers, mm-hmm. so they turn their violence to other women. So I was trying to 
actually say that there is no beauty in in that you know there is no heroism there is no uh, act of uh, liberation or freedom there is just a horrible murder and i was trying to be ironic but maybe uh i don't know after talking with a with a with a friend uh we got to the conclusion that an, epi an epigraph is not just the perfect way to be uh, the perfect place to be ironic so what are you working on what are you working on now and and what can we expect from you next? I'm working on a, on a new novel. Um, I'm kind of polishing the, the final draft. And it's been a, a very interesting work. I cannot reveal much because that will make me feel really bad afterwards. <laughs> I, I already know how that goes. Well, let me ask you, let me ask you this, because I saw you on Twitter. You, you tweeted in Spanish finished Termine. <laughs> yes which suggests you finished a draft i'm guessing which perhaps you've unlocked the secret of how to write while we're under quarantine and a pandemic <laughs> so I, I think it was a matter for uh of uh, for mental health for me so I, I had to i was working in this uh draft from forever from a year and ago a year ago and I really wanted to to have it done. And what happened was that I was so focused uh, in in the draft that I totally leave out uh, the COVID and quarantine and coronavirus and people dying. And I, I know it sounds terrible, but for me it was a matter of survival, uh, of uh, surmounting anxiety. And now that I finish, it's like everything fell over me like a building, you know? It's, uh, I, I barely begin to manage all the losses that I'm facing this year, for example, uh, due to coronavirus. So, yeah, you can, you can uh, lock yourself up and write your asses off, <laughs> but <laughs> at the end, reality will come to get you. So, but it sounds like a great a great strategy though to to stave off reality by continuing to produce more art well as i told you i didn't have any choice it was my way of dealing with the situation yeah. and it, it was nice because i didn't have so many distractors uh i was i wasn't tempted to go to paris for example so i think it worked yeah well thank you so much for being on between the covers today fernanda Oh, thank you, David. Thank you for the invitation. This has been a wonderful experience. We've been talking today to Fernanda Melchor, the author of Hurricane Season. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was not recorded at the studios of KBOO but at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. You can find more of Fernanda Melchor on Twitter at FFFMelchor. And we've added my hour-long conversation with Sophie Hughes, the translator of Hurricane Season, to the bonus audio archive, joining bonus audio from Christina Rivera Garza, Lily Longsoldier, Carmen Maria Machado, and many others, but also joining BOTUS audio by other translators. 
from Ellen Elias Bursich, the translator of Dubrovka Ugresich, to Suzanne Jill Levine, the translator of Christina Rivera Garza and Silvina Ocampo, among many others, and Lee Tween Wen, who translated Dao Strom's poetry into Vietnamese. All of this and much more is available to supporters of the show and can be found at patreon.com slash between the covers. I'd like to thank the Tin House team who tirelessly help make the show run as smoothly as it does. Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogie in the book division, Jacob Valla and Jeremy Cruz in the art department, Yashwina Cantor in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the Summer and Winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, is Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes. And Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning.